be seated. Well, again, welcome to HBF. It's good to see you here this morning. And if you're joining us for the first time, we're glad that you're here. If you came because of the Harvest Party, we're really glad. And um, we're glad that you're able to make it out this morning. I'm still fired up about all the fun and festivities we had yesterday uh, with the children and the families and uh, all the folks that, that came out for that. I want to thank all those that were involved and um, were allowed of God to minister. And so we had about 150 people show up, about 23 first-time guests, so that was good. Jim Stovall did a great job of sharing the gospel, and uh, we heard a lot of great testimonies, and uh, it was a good time. And so if, uh, if you're tuning in this morning on Facebook, we're glad that you're with us. And if you missed the announcement earlier, you can text uh, HBF Guest to the number 94000. Let us know you're with us. We'd love to connect with you and uh, get you some online resources. If you have a Bible, uh, be turned to the book of 1 John chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one from the seat rack in front of you. And turn to page 1,633, which if you're basically start in the back, it's only a few pages into the back of your Bible. So if you start in the front, it'll take you a while to get there. It'll feel like you're leaving the Bible by the time you get to 1 John chapter 4. And so uh, we're glad that you're with us this morning. Last week we talked about how to spot a phony. How did we do that? Everybody remember? All right, you got to know the real thing, right? You got to know the authentic thing. If you want to know a phony, you got to be the real thing. So um, we're completely uh, familiar now with that, uh, that need to be authentic. Last week we saw the need to try the spirits, and we saw two major things in 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The first was to know the Spirit of God, right? You've got to know the real thing, or you're not going to understand the false thing. So we took some time to talk about knowing the Spirit of God, and, and John opened that chapter uh, 4 with an admonition not to believe every spirit, but make sure that you tried the spirits, make sure they're of God. So Again, um, if we don't know the Lord, we're not going to be able to discern a lying spirit. And then uh, and on the board there or on the screen there, you can see we talked about knowing God's affection for you, um, knowing the Spirit's confession over you, and then knowing the Spirit's identification and reputation uh, of those who minister to you, right? All of those things were compacted in that message last week. And then as we progressed to the second point, we saw now that we understood the, the real thing and the work of the Spirit in us, it's important that we progress to that next point of noting the evidence of false prophets, right? So now that we have the real thing, we can compare it against the other, which is false. So John was simply building on what Jesus had taught him and the disciples in his earthly ministry, and we saw some practical points concerning how to note the evidence of a false prophet. First, we noted their confession, and then 1 John 4, 3, uh, that is, if they don't confess that Jesus is come in the flesh, then that is a spirit of Antichrist. Second, we noted their, their location. John mentioned these spirits were of the world and already in the world from the time of Christ to the ministry at the end of the first century, and they are certainly still with us today, so they are ever-present, and they are uh, working among us today. Third, we noted the con conversation in 1 John 4, 5. They, uh, they speak of the world. Their focus is on earthly things. Specifically, we noticed that many false teachers um, <clears throat> exist among those preaching the prosperity gospel, which is exactly the opposite of what the scripture teaches. And so we noted that and talked about that. You can go back and listen to the details if you want from last week. And last, we saw in 1 John 4, 6, that, these, uh, that those who give uh, these spirits <clears throat> uh, undivided attention are certainly receiving the spirit of error. Right? To continue listening and being a part of that without uh, you know, walking away from it, rebuking it, getting away, you're actually then part of the problem. So these are promoting, uh, not promoting, I should say, rather the spirit of truth. So uh, that's what we covered last week, and you can see, again, that was on the board. So the thing that brings us this morning to where we are in our text, and uh, it's not enough to try the spirits. Uh, that's a good discussion. But God, through John, gives us what we need to triumph in the spirit uh, in God's love. And so, if you would, just let's look at the text together. I am going to ask that we stand in honor of God's Word this morning. First John chapter 4. We're going to read the rest of this chapter. There's a, there's a lot here. So let's just look at this together in verse 6. It says, We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. <clears throat> he that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. 
In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man that hath seen God at any uh, no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we the, <coughs> that uh, dwell, I'm sorry. Here, hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us this, His Spirit, and we have seen and do testify that, uh, that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in the Lord. There is no fear in love. But perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If any man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he that loveth God love his brother also. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. It is holy, it is true, it is right. And Lord, uh, compared to everything else, it's wrong. Lord, there's nothing that is better than you or your word, and, and that includes us, Lord. So Lord, we thank you for giving us your word and loving us and correcting us and, and giving us what we need to love others as well, empowering us this morning to triumph over those things that would trip us up, that would deceive us, that would beguile us, giving us the power, the love, and the sound mind from your word to love you and to love others as we ought. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We ask a blessing on the reading and the hearing of it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Huh. Excuse me. So John, um, he leaves chapter 4, uh, that last verse, which i just read again. It says, And this commandment have we from, the, from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. That's a familiar refrain throughout the book of 1 John. We've seen that many times, and we've touched on the great commandment many times. John leaves chapter 4 in this familiar territory as he kind of cycles back around, and we've talked about the oriental nature of John's writing as it kind of loops around and makes circles and reiterates the same truths over and over in different ways. And so he leaves on this great commandment to love God and to love people. And that's easier said than done. It's impossible to triumph in the Spirit of God if you don't have the Spirit of God. That's where we've got to start. Uh, therefore, if you're going to triumph over the spirit of Antichrist, you have to have the spirit of God. The Holy Ghost has to reside in us. Now, that may seem like basics, but it's really important. You can only receive that spirit through the new birth. However, once you're born again and the spirit of God has sealed, has sealed your soul until the day of redemption, the Bible says that you are more than a conqueror in Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. So you are, and I am, on victory lane this morning if you're born again. And so John leaves us on, on a high note. And this morning, as we who are saved have triumphed over, over the spirit of Antichrist, it's just a matter of time before that becomes self-evident. So there's really nothing going on in this world that is not already taken care of in Christ. Everything is settled. And so that leaves us to look at, well, then what do we need to talk about this morning? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because I want to give you some things to consider this morning. The, the one way our, our victorious position is evident today is through the manifestation of God's love through us, right? Because even though things got settled on the cross, and even though my sin debt got paid when I knelt down and trusted Christ on March 25th, 1987, the working out of God's love is what's happening right now. So God leaves us on the planet to be, uh, an, as uh, Alan Shaw would say, an experiential exegesis, right? You get to experience the love of God working in and through you. And <clears throat> that is not just for your benefit, though it is. It's also, most importantly, for God's benefit, because we know that Jesus Christ bodily is not here. He ascended in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And then he descended in the form of the Spirit of God indwelling who? Us, the believer. So therefore, it's important that this manifestation of God's love is visible and present in the day and the and time in which we live, specifically to us as individuals in our lives and then corporately as a local New Testament church. Excuse me. 
tickle in my throat, so I'm say a swig of water, <clears throat> and then I learned that was, I guess that applies to a lot of things that are not seemly, so I can't help it, that's just <clears throat> my vernacular, but anyway, so the one way our victorious position is evident today is through the manifestation of God's love in and through us, so this morning I want to share seven things that reveal we are triumphing in the Spirit of God, Are we? and are we, really, that's really the question for us individually. And also as a church, are we really triumphing in the Spirit of God? There's a lot of Debbie Downers today, and don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things that kind of punch you in the gut, and you got to catch your breath, spiritually speaking, and all of that. I know, I get it, I'm part of that too, but don't you want some victory? I mean, I do. And uh, victory is, is available. And so I think we can get a lot of great points here this morning, and so i got a lot of points to give, as you can see, so let's get into it. The first thing I want to see this morning, in regard to revealing that we are triumphing in the Spirit of love, is love is our divine nature. That's where you got to start. Verses 7 and 8, John is addressing that very point in verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. See, it's part of that nature that comes with the new birth. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. I mean, if you're born again, you are, you are certainly grafted into Christ, and love is part of the equation. It's the first mention of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, right? Love is part of, it's not what you do, it's who you are. And, this, uh, and we see the second time uh, the word beloved mentioned here in verse, uh, verse 7. In 1 John chapter 4, the first time we saw the word beloved is in verse 2, in reference to our birthright. And that's in the book of 1 John, I should say, rather, in the whole book. The first time we saw it was back in chapter 3 when he says, beloved, uh, what behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, he says, now are we the sons of God, and it doth, doth not yet appear what we shall be. So there he's talking to the everybody together. Beloved, you are the sons of God. Individually, every born-again uh, New Testament believer is a son of God, according to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Uh, and then we see the second mention of beloved in verse 21 of that same uh, chapter in reference to the beloved if our heart condemn us then we have confidence toward God so he brings that assurance of our new birth and then the third mention is in uh, chapter 4 and verse 1 which we saw last week beloved believe not every spirit he wants to protect the church right from the evil spirits that would cause hurt to her by false teaching and that spirit of antichrist which he mentions and then John is imploring us not to believe every spirit but to try them to see if they are of God. And then our new birth gives us confidence toward God and love for our brothers. That's what we see in verse 7 as we just read. So the rest of the chapter will reinforce John's statement uh, here in verse 7 as he continues on. So he says love is of God, and later he'll say love, God is love. But right now it's worth noting that the love that John is referring to in 1 John is not a cheap uh, erotic love or an eros type of love. That's spoken in so many love songs and, and so many movies today, right? It's it's all a it's a romantic and then an erotic. Oftentimes, maybe skip the romantic and just get to the erotic love. That's kind of what is is uh, is talked about a lot in our culture because it's pretty deviant nowadays. And so, love is that's not the love we're talking about. And we're also not talking about a noble Philadelphian love, you know, the love that would cause you to lay down your life for your friend. I mean, that's a great love. I mean, a great brotherly love, Philadelphian church age. Revelation chapter 3, wonderful love. That's great. You shouldn't, we shouldn't minimize brotherly love. As a matter of fact, we should continue in it, right? Let, let it continue. The Lord's Supper is coming up next Sunday. I pray by God's grace, everyone in here has brotherly love, one toward another, that we should have that. But this love that we're talking about is really what I'm calling a divine love, and that is the love of God. It's an agape love, and, and I don't usually go to the Greek on all these, these terms, but in this case, I do want to just stress that when we're talking about love here, the model isn't, isn't, a, it isn't from the ground up, right? It isn't from the flesh up. This is from God to earth. This is a divine love. This is the love that God has for the world. First John, or John chapter 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world. This is a, a divine love that originates with God and is present in those who are born of him. So when you get saved, this divine love that God has for you is now in you because he's given you his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So those who don't love, don't know God, they can't possibly love. Those who don't love don't know God. Depends on how you want to re uh, structure that sentence. But those who don't love God don't know God. That's the truth. 
This is a biblical statement of fact. It's not that you can't have a, an earthly love, um, but th at the end of the day, it's not divine. It's not until you get saved that you have the capacity to love like Christ loves. What does that really mean? Of course, we've already touched on this a few sermons ago. Once you get through loving your brother, eventually that, that means loving your, your enemy, right? Loving your enemy. And that's the kind of love that God wants us to have. But if it isn't working horizontally with your brethren, it isn't going to work to your enemy, is it? Right? If you can't love the people who represent Jesus here, then how are you going to love the people that are your enemy? It's not going to be very effective. And so today is a very common, uh, well, let me back up. The fact that God is love, <clears throat> it directs our faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. This isn't like a, this isn't in verse 8, this is not some sort of subjective statement. He that, love, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, this is, by the way, too, is the first God is love statement in the Bible. God is love. Just, it's a plain fact. It's stated. It's in what I would call empirical evidence. Now, I know there's a lot of people today that don't hold the Bible up as any evidence, and that's their problem. But I believe this is, a, this is obviously a statement of fact. It's what the Bible teaches. It is what is true. And so because of that fact that God is love, it directs our faith, because faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We have to choose this, or we choose not to believe God's word. Uh, and that's the reality. Today, it's very common for famous supposed Christians to become disheartened <clears throat> and leave the faith um, <clears throat> because the world they uh, because the, the the world they see doesn't match the God they say they serve. I don't know how many of you have seen these. I've watched interviews on and podcasts and all this stuff on uh, the internet and what have you, and, and it's, it makes big news, right? When someone gets born, we have people get saved all the time, and man, the angels are rejoicing, but you don't see it on the news. But wait till some <clears throat> shallow Christian or some messed up Christian gets on the news and says, man, I'm not in this anymore. I wrote a book called A Kiss Dating Goodbye, now I'm a homosexual or whatever. I don't know if that guy's a homo, I don't remember. But at the end of the day, um, something causing him to leave the faith, and now it's, it's, on, it's on the news, it's all over the place, right? We're, we're, we we got to talk about this great loss uh, because this guy wrote a book that was a bestseller. And so, and so sometimes these folks, it, what they see in the world doesn't really match their faith. And these shallow uh, musicians and authors and sometimes even pastors, you know, they kiss God's word goodbye as they, miss, as, they miss, uh, as they really end up missing the mark and impugning God's character, right? For allowing AIDS or war in Africa or human trafficking in Kathmandu. There's always some great uh, social evil. And, and by the way, I would agree with them. It is terrible. I hate it too. But I'm not going to blame God for it. That's the difference. God is love. If you think for a half a second that God is, is not concerned about the starving people of Africa or the people being trafficked in Kathmandu or Cass County for that matter uh, and, and all the sin-wrecked world that we're in, then you simply don't understand the love of God. You don't understand what the gospel is about. And, and sadly, I fear that for many of these that have departed from the faith, they probably, I don't even know if they understood the gospel initially. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. That's between them and the Lord. But I'm here preaching to the church this morning, and it's important that our faith is fixed on what the Word of God says. There's not one moment that you should doubt the love of God. You say, yeah, but I feel like Job. Well, you know what? Feel like Job. That's fine. You can be disheartened. You can be discouraged. You can be down. But that doesn't mean that does not reflect anything on God's character of love and goodness. God is good all the time. He loves you regardless of how you feel about it or how I feel about it. So why in the world would one think God is uncaring or loving when he has sent his only begotten son to cure the generational and universal cancer of sin and death? Right? I mean, that is the reality. Uh, they do this because they are no longer following the God of the Bible and the error and they err not knowing the Scripture or the power of God. And our disillusionment with God's love has no bearing on the facts of the impact of God's love upon the willing hearts that receive it. When you sense the chill of man's stone-cold heart, and I mean, hey, let me, let's get honest here. I'm not talking about everybody outside the church. I'm talking about people in the church. We sing hymns like, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Right? Oh, God, take my heart and seal it, right? Seal it in thy courts above. Our hearts are prone to wonder. But man, how do we keep them hot? We keep them hot by kindling them with the fire of God's word. We've got to stay in God's word. We've got to stay with the truth because the world has all kinds of lies. That's why Paul, this follows on the heels of Antichrist, people who are mischaracterizing 
the coming of Christ, right? He wasn't really visible. He wasn't, or he was visible, but he wasn't physical. He didn't really come in his incarnation. He was just a spiritual being because all the world is, is evil and he couldn't have become flesh, else he would have become sinful. All of that false teaching that John was fighting at that time, he was like saying, no, God is love. The reason he became flesh and dwelt among us is because he loves the world. The reason that people, the reason there's despots and there's all kinds of horrible things going on and there has been for 2,000 years is because we haven't gotten the gospel where it needs to go on time. And when we did get it there, people have rejected it because men love evil more than they love good. That's the fact of the matter. And so we must then pray and we must continue to, to love our enemies and get the gospel where it needs to go on time. That is the truth. It's not to quit and go home because our felt needs aren't met because of God. Man, God's met all of our needs in Christ, but we have to believe what the Bible says about that and continue on in the faith, working out the love of God in and through us. So when, when you sense that chill, be careful. If it's not, if it's not the judgment of God, God upon a wicked and rebellious people, it very may well be the result of the fruit of Christians who have not embraced the power of God nor the love of God and have not taken the great commission along with the great commandment seriously and gotten the gospel where it needs to go on time. Why are we so quick to blame God? It's really, it's on us. It's on us. Because we got to do what God's called us to do and be who God saved us to be. It may very well be that the sin that leaves you questioning God's love is a mirror of your love or lack thereof for God. Perhaps it's time to hang up your rock and roll fantasy and go deeper into the battle so you can see God make the difference that you think needs to be made. It's there you will finally understand that Jesus has beat you to the punch and has been waiting for you to arrive the whole time. And if you're that concerned about Africa or whatever, well then quit your job, quit your guitar job, and become a missionary, man. Get in the Bible, come to Heartland, get in HBI, we'll train you up and we will send you to Africa so you can help be part of the solution instead of complaining about God not fixing the problem. Don't doubt God or his word. Your new birth gives you the capacity to love like Jesus. It's, it's in your spiritual DNA. Now that you are a child of God, Right? I'm not saying you can't expect, that's another thing. As Christians, we can't expect the world to act like Christ if they don't have Christ in them. So John 13, Jesus is addressing this with his disciples. He says in verse uh, 34, he says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. And we've already touched on this in the past. So uh, this is the new commandment. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one toward another. So the love that we have for one another is visible outside of the body of Christ. The love that you ha- that you have for God or the love God has for you is visible when you get saved. You become a new creature, the lights come on and the body of Christ recognizes it. You follow the Lord and believers baptism as a matter of fact and we all say, "Yes! Man, this person is in Christ. They're following the Lord." But not only that, as we gather together and we do what we did yesterday and we do what we do all over, as we take trips to Mammoth, as we go here and we go there and we go yonder, what God is doing is working in and through us to show the, this world the light of Christ because they know. They know that we love him and we, because we love each other. That makes complete sense, doesn't it? Second point, love originates from God's divine power. 1 John 4, 9, <clears throat> it, it, and this was the manifest of the love of God toward us because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So the power of Jesus is Jesus incarnation is important here. He says this was manifest in this was manifested the love of God toward us. How did that happen? Well, through the power of Jesus incarnation. So God's love was manifested through Jesus death, burial, resurrection and ascension and will also be manifest when we return when he comes to catch us away and then we return with him. So before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he manifests his power over death in the resurrection of Lazarus, Lazarus in John 11. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. And then he, what's interesting is he asks this question at the end, believest thou this? Do you believe this? Right? They were all upset because Lazarus was dead. They're crying. Jesus is upset because, you know, he sees what death has done. Jesus is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, for sure. But the real issue isn't how we feel. The real issue is what we believe about who Jesus is. Do you believe that he's the resurrection and the life? 
Man, John is saying, in this was manifest the love of God toward us because the God sent his only begotten son into the world. When we talk about love, and we don't have to, we got we to go back 2,000 years, and that is the love that you need. And you got to fit that into your context of where you are today. I didn't get saved until I realized the love that I needed had already taken place a couple, almost 2,000 years before I was born. That's some love. Man, you talk about providing a heavenly father that loves you. He provides for you thousands of years before you're even born or hatched. It depends where you come from. No, I'm just kidding about that. So, <clears throat> so before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he manifests his power over death in the resurrection of Lazarus there, and we saw that. So when we're lost, we're dead in trespass and sins, and it is the power of Christ, of course, that quickens us. And so in Romans 5, 6, the Bible says, For when we were yet without strength, and we didn't have the power, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And our Calvinist friends will say, well, you don't have any power to make decisions. Well, it doesn't say that. It means you have no power to be right with God or righteous. Obviously, you have power to make decisions. You make them every day, lost or saved. God gives us that. That's still left over from our idemic nature. We're humans. But there comes a point in time when you have no power. You have no power um, you have no strength to redeem yourself. But in due time, you know what Christ did? He died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Perhaps today you're listening to me online or maybe you're even in the building and you've not received the goodness of God, the love of God. Today's the day of salvation. I mean, God is commending his love toward us. Now, if you haven't received that love, man, that, there's a point where that's on, on you. God makes it abundantly clear that, hey, listen, my love was manifest in my son on the cross 2,000 years ago, and today is the day of salvation. <clears throat> Once you receive that grace, that love, that goodness of God, then we have the power of God's abundant life. And not like the prosperity gospel uh, preachers that we talked about last week. There is an abundant life, though, that comes to those that are saved. In John 10, Jesus spoke of it. He says, I am the door, Right? And this is the confusion in Laodicea. We know that, the door. Where is the door? Well, Jesus is the door. That's what John chapter 10 says. And so he wants us to sup with him. If you're going to sup with Jesus, you've got to open the door. You've got to get into the book. You've got to get into the word of God. And so, and so the Bible says, I am the, Jesus says, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. Right? We get saved, 1 Peter, by the words of God, by the word of God. And he says, and shall go in and out and find pasture. Oh, man, 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's he going to do? He's going to provide for me as I graze upon the fertile soil and the fertile ground of God's word. Why? Because I'm a new creature in Christ, and you're a new creature in Christ. Praise God. How many have entered the door? Man, I know I did. Hallelujah to you. That's awesome. So verse 10, but the thief comes, right? The thief cometh. Uh, not, uh, but the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. There's a thief out there. And Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. So what is God promising in abundance? Well, a new car. No, no it's not a new car. It's an abundant life, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's an abundant life. And that life, how do you get abundant life? Well, you multiply life. In a physical sense, you have children that make children and have children, right? And you multiply. In a spiritual sense, that's how we have an abundant life is we take the seed of God's word. We mature. We graze on it. We allow it to grow us up and let it come in us and go through us. And we exercise that faith, right? We, we're edified. We get built up. We exercise. And then we engage in God's mission and God's power with God's, for God's glory. And you know what happens? Fruit starts to appear. We start to see people saved. People get discipled. And the next thing you know, man, the power of God is giving you an abundant life. And there's fruit, John chapter 15, and much fruit. And then fruit that remains that this enemy can't kill, he can't steal or destroy. And we become like, a, as, as, as Martin Luther said, a mighty fortress. Right? A mighty fortress is our God, but you know what he wants? He wants to make you and me a mighty fortress. There is the house of the Lord, the household of faith, the those of us that are saved, the church of the living God, but individually, you're like a house. You're like a tabernacle where the Lord dwells. And he wants to see you rooted and built up and grounded on the word of God so that you can have that abundant life. Now, as an American, as a Laodicean, we think abundant life. Immediately, we think, yeah, what does that mean to me? <laughs> it isn't about you. Abundant life is, is the life that flows into and through others, through you, so that there's fruit. 
that remains. Because you all know, the older you get, the most important things in life are not your job. They are not the money you made. It's the people. It's your kids. It's your grandkids, right? Those are the things that are precious. It's the relationships. That's what's really important. And so that's what's really important in eternity as well because relationships are what Jesus came to die for. He didn't come to give everybody a new car or a new house, right? Everyone knows that's wood, hay, and stubble, and that stuff's going to burn, and it only brings happiness for a moment, and it's fleeting. The thief wants to get your eyes off off track and get you onto things that can be destroyed so that you can be destroyed. But he says, I'm going to give you something much more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. This author of life gave up his life so that we could have abundant life. See, worship is what it's about, isn't it? We want to, John opens this epistle and says, hey, we want to have fellowship. But you know what it's about for John? It's about what his Savior was about, and that's worship. Sacrificing his life for others. And man, church, you're doing that. I just want to encourage you. I see a lot of that going on, and I just say, praise God, you're living an abundant life. The power of God's propitiation. He uses this 50-cent word, propitiation, and so that dumb preachers like me can look smart. So here in his love, John has already used this word propitiation in verse 2 of chapter 2 when he said, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not ours, not ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So propiti- propitiation means, in theological sense, the atonement or atoning sacrifice offered to uh, God to assuage his wrath and render him uh, pro- propitious to sinners. Uh, in essence, he is the replacement for our sin. Christ is the propitiation for the sins of men. So Paul also spoke of propitiation himself in Romans 3.25, which, by the way, I do believe the word propitiation and this concept is one of the reasons I, I th- there's evidences as you go through 1 John uh, that John had already read read that's not even English. Uh, he had already read, he'd already read the epistles of, of Paul, certainly. I think he'd not only read them, I think he'd studied them pretty thoroughly. And so... Romans 3.25 says, Whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And so Paul uses that same word propitiation in Romans 3 and verse 25. It's God's propitiation that has given us ability to overcome sin and be brought to life through God's love and for God's love. And so <clears throat> when we triumph in the spirit, over God, uh, the spirit of God's love, love is our divine nature. That's our first point. Secondly, love originates from God's divine power. And thirdly, love empowers our divine witness. In verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. <clears throat> no man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Now here we see the third mention of beloved in 1 John 4. This third mention of beloved in 1 John 4 deals with the impact of God's love to us, working through us and all around us. Defining one another, one another is important. Several weeks ago, I pointed out to you <clears throat> the lawyer who, when tempted by Jesus, came away schooled by Jesus because he was trying to get, he's getting sticky over, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus is like, oh, you want to know who your neighbor is? And he goes into that, that story of of uh, the Good Samaritan, right? And of course, by the end of that, that, that lawyer knew exactly who the neighbor was, uh, or who the good neighbor was, and knew exactly what he was supposed to do. <clears throat> and we're commanded in 1 John 2.15 not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. We even memorize that. So we love the world, how? Well, obviously not by jumping in with them. Oh, I love pigs. I'm going to go wallow in the pig mire. No, no, no. That's not how you love the world. You love the world by sharing the gospel. We have a whole uh, movement at HBF right now, and you'll learn more about it as the year goes forth um, in, the next, in the next year, but it's called Intentional Gospel Outreach. It's about getting the gospel where it needs to go, any way and every way. It's just being, it's being intentional about getting the gospel to the world. It manifests to the world that we love them because we love God enough to share the simple message. And you'd be shocked increasingly how many people literally have not heard the gospel because they're in their own, uh, their own, they're in their own technological echo chambers. And it doesn't matter how educated or uneducated they are. It's not about knowledge. It's about, it's about getting a message to them that God wants to get. And it's, it's, it's just fuzzy out here in the world today. The, the volume on everything else is turned up 
And unfortunately, the volume on the gospel, it seems to be turned down a little bit. This is a time we need to crank up the volume. We need to get that thing going because uh, it is the only message that really means anything. So uh, it's important that we understand that. So we don't need to embrace uh, gay pride to love sexual perverts. I just saw a mother do that on Instagram yesterday. I was, it was really sad for her. And she, her and her son came out as heterosexual. I'm like, what are you doing? Well, I know what she's doing. She's trying to placate people. And instead of just saying, you know, this is silly. And she's probably not a Christian, so I'll give her some slack. I don't know. I would doubt it. I would hope she's not a Christian. But, um, you know, whether you, you know, listen, we don't have to embrace gay pride, love sexual perverts and all that to prove our love for the world. Because we love all sexual perverts the same way. We give them the gospel. Does it matter if you're a homosexual pervert or a heterosexual pervert? It doesn't matter. If you're cheating on your wife, you're cheating on your husband, you're, you're, uh, you're in fornication, you're having sex outside of marriage, guess what? That's as perverse as anything you're going to do. It's serious to God. He says, don't let that be named in the church. So that's serious immorality. And then you just tack on to it all the other acronyms, all the other letters, right? LGBTQ, XYZ, I mean, whatever. You know, it's just, the, it's what nature of man is. It's fallen. And so what, what does man need? They need the gospel. How do we love, how do we love those that are in some sort of sinful lifestyle? We gently, sincerely, and this is an issue of our hearts, understand their peril and we offer them the only thing that's going to make a difference in their life and that is the love of Christ. Okay, so you might get punched in the face. All right, we'll love your enemy and keep moving. That's a closed door. Maybe God will get to him later. But at the end of the day, there is no other trick. It is the fact that Jesus loved them before they, they were ever born. It doesn't matter what sin they're in today. God still loves them and he gave his son as evidence for that. And if they will repent and call upon his name, God will change them from the inside out. And it's not about what they love in the world. It's about will they love the God that died on the cross to save them from this world. And beloved, that's really the gospel. We got to get it where it needs to go. God doesn't color sin with the rainbow. He colors sin as black. And he unites humanity and, and all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is the preacher. It's everybody in this room and it's everybody out in the world. We've all fallen short of God's glory. We're all black. And guess what? He redeems us through his blood. You don't get the color of the rainbow until you get born again. That's because judgment's fallen on him instead of us. That's God's love. It was his shed blood that was, that was shed to redeem us from the curse of, of the law and of sin and death and reconcile all that would call upon his name to Christ, the loving Savior of the world. So many are looking for, for love in all the wrong places. <clears throat> They'll not find God's love in education, in financial security, in technology, in debauchery of whatever sort. They will seek <clears throat> and find God's love when they call upon the name of the Lord Jesus and receive the Father's love through his Son. So John records in John 14, 6 through 11, uh, when Philip, his disciple, was saying, hey, show us the Father. And Jesus teaches his disciples that if you want to see the Father and his love, you've seen him when you've seen me, being Jesus, because no man had seen the Father. In John 14, 6, he says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If he had known me, you had known the fa my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. I mean, Jesus is just saying it. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That's it. I am the physical manifestation of the Father. No man's going to see him. I am him, right? I'm God manifest in the flesh. Philip says unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. <laughs> Were you not listening, Philip? Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me? I mean, do you know anything about who I am, Philip? <clears throat> the, 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 the words that I speak, I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very works' sake. He's like, just see, just watch, right? Just watch. What the lost world sees of the Father. Now, that, fast forward this. Now, this is the concept. This is the context when Jesus was on the earth before he died and resurrected. 
course, sends his, his Holy Ghost in Acts chapter 2. And now who dwells in you? The invisible person of Christ, the third member of the Godhead. And so uh, what the lost world sees of the Father in heaven is the love, is, is, he sees the Father's love for this world through his obedient son's love for the Father. He sees all of that. The lost person sees that through you. If they haven't picked up a Bible, of course, the Word of God makes it very clear. But what they don't see from God's Word, they will see reflected in, in each and every one of us. The love of the Father for the Son, the love of the Son for the Father in obedience, the, the, the sacrifices there. What are they gonna, they're going to see that in us, in the way we carry ourselves, the way we live, the way we love. You are Christ's ambassador on this earth. Now, I'm not saying that you are Christ, obviously. We're, we're, we're sons of God. But his loving nature, we carry around with us. And we put it on display or we hide it under a bushel. So the place we need to find God's love is in his word, but it's also in us. In 1 John 4, 12, John says his love is perfected in us. Perfected means complete. Is God's love being completed in your life personally? What's interesting about that is Colossians 2.10 says, And you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. According to the Bible, we talked about that in a, in a previous chapter, right? There's positional, and then there's practical, right? There's this posi- in a, in Positionally, you are complete. And if you're a young Christian, I can't get this through your mind enough. You have to know who you are in Christ. You are complete in him. You are a son of God. You are a child of God. Because the devil's going to tell you you're incomplete. You're not worthy to be a child. You're not worthy to be a son. That you, you need something else. You're lacking. It's just not true. In Christ, you have it all because the Spirit of God dwells in you. But practically speaking, then, we've got to go about in, the, in, in what Paul is talking about, Philippians 1, 6, to the church at, at Philippi. He teaches there that God was doing a good work in them, right? And that will be completed. I, he was so excited. I didn't put that reference in my notes. Let me quickly read it. Uh, but he, he tells them in Philippians 1, 6, he says, uh, he's talking about their fellowship. He's making prayer for them, always making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Well, I thought you said it was complete. Well, obviously, positionally it is, but practically God is working that out. You see this room right now? There's some work that needs to be done, not only in us individually, but in that, in that person that's not sitting next to you, right? I see a lot of empty spots. Well, what's God want to do? He wants to complete the work. He wants us to win people to Christ. He wants us to get them where they need to go in the Word of God. He wants us to grow them up. I'm not saying it's about numbers, but it is somewhat about numbers. Jesus didn't die for the elect few. He died for the world. And everyone needs to hear the gospel and have every opportunity to receive it while there's time. So triumphing in the spirit of God's love. Love is our divine nature. Love originates from God's divine power. Love empowers our divine witness. It makes us go out and witness for God and as he completes that work in us that's already been completed through Christ and and fourth thing is that love provides divine assurance and boy do we need that first John four thirteen. hereby know we that we dwell in him and he in us because he hath given us his spirit and if we have seen and do testify that the father sent the son to be the savior of the world whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the son of God God dwelleth in him and he in God and we have known and believed <coughs> um, the love that God hath to us. God is love. Second time we see it. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. So the purpose of God's indwelling Holy Spirit is to provide assurance. We have assurance through the word of the Spirit, of course. First John three nineteen. he said, And hereby, know, uh, <clears throat> hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Of course, we know his word is truth. John five thirteen. later when we get to chapter 5, says this, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. You can be assured of your eternal life through the Word of God. You have a receipt on your salvation. Number two, we have assurance through the witness of the Spirit. Romans eight sixteen says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Who among us hasn't wrestled, especially when you're young in the Lord, with your salvation until finally the Spirit, like in my life, had to yell at me, Brian, you can't get saved anymore. You got saved already. Dude, when are you going to believe my word? Go back to point one. You're either going to believe it or you're going to go off your feelings. It's the facts of what the word of God says. That's what informs your faith. 
It's not how you feel day to day and how you woke up today. I mean, if you're living in that quandary, man, you're going to feel lost, you know, nine out of ten days. Anchor yourself in the, bo- in the book and open the door, man. Get in the book. I know of what I speak because I've, I've been there too. Man, that witness of the Spirit of God, when you c- couple it with the Word of God, boom, now you're there and God will work. And then the third thing is we have assurance through the sealing of the Spirit. Again, more knowledge of what happened when you got saved is also very important. When you got saved, the Spirit of God sealed your soul till the day of redemption. You are cut away, the Bible says. First Corinthians one twenty or Second Corinthians one twenty two says, "Who hath sealed us and given us the earnest of the of the Spirit in our hearts?" It's like a it's like earnest money, right? It says, "I'm good for the rest." So God get, puts. I mean, how awesome is that? He puts the Spirit in us. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You don't have to speak in tongues. The moment you trust Christ as Savior, he's in you. He seals your soul. And at that moment, man, you know what? You've got the down payment. You've got the earnest money. And that means that God's good for it. He's good to redeem the rest of your body. So you're too, I just uh, was at the certainty conference. We were talking about the Spirit. And I never really thought about it, but you're two-thirds saved. I mean, you're all saved. Don't get me wrong. But the only thing left to get straightened out is your old flesh. Because it got cut away from your soul the moment you got saved through the Spirit of God. And now... You got, the, you got the soul and the spirit. They're set. And all we got to do now is when he redeems this, he, he put two-thirds down. <laughs> and then he says, I'm going to come back, and you're going to be changed in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And, man, it's all going to be complete. It's going to be incredible. And so you have the sealing of the spirit of God. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom you also trusted, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that you believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, after you believe. Ephesians 4.30, And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed until the day of redemption. The witness of the Spirit not only gives you assurance, he also convicts you and is grieved when you say, you know what, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do what I'm going to do because, well, I'm me. And I, I like to worship me than, more than God. So, And we all do that. And the Spirit of God says, hey, Brian, what are you doing? Come on, man. That's what he says. And uh, I'm like, That's, that sounds like a voice from above. And uh, quit doing that. I, I just. But we have this assurance through the earnest of the Spirit. Second Corinthians one twenty two, uh, Who hath sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit, now that he hath wrought for us the selfsame thing as God, who also hath given us the earnest of his Spirit. So the assurance of God's promise of salvation is therefore, it's the second mention of God is love is found in verse 8. And we see this, uh, that's, a, that's also the only other mention of that phrase in the entire Bible. So we dwell in God's nature when we dwell in God's love. Okay, so let's recap. So we triumph in the spirit of God's love because love is our divine nature, number one. Love originates from God's divine power. Love empowers our divine witness and love provides divine assurance. So fifth, love provides divine boldness as well. Herein is our love made perfect, right, complete, that we may have boldness when? In the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect or complete in love. So love provides boldness when? In the day of judgment. And for us, that's a judgment seat of Christ. John is once again pointing us back to 1 John 2.28, which I've mentioned many times, where he where he's saying, hey, I want you to have confidence. And he says, now, my little children, abide in him that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Are you going to be confident? If the Lord came today or you were to die today, would you be confident, not in your salvation, hopefully you're confident in your salvation, but are you confident that you are living the life that God is having you to live so that you would be like, man, I have been doing what God wants me to do. I am confident at the judgment seat of Christ. That I, I have, I've, I've, I've put in what God wanted me to put in. I loved God and I loved people and I was doing the call that God put upon my life. That doesn't mean you have to be a preacher or a missionary per se. But each and every one of us, God wants us to live a godly life that bears fruit and much fruit and fruit that remains within the sphere of our own influence. And that gets, it, it just entails us loving God and loving people. And that is what will give us boldness in that day. So John, once again, is pointing us back to to what he said in 1 John 2, 28, which set us up to even understand our birthright in chapter 3. Now, love provides boldness in practice. And then he goes to this discussion of boldness in, in, the, in the text there. He starts talking about the, the boldness that we should have in verse 18. He says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear hath torment. Man, who among us in this world 
What, is it, what does the devil want to do? He wants to strike fear in your heart. He's a roaring lion that seeks whom he may devour. But you know, he's not really a roaring lion. He walks about like a roaring lion. He's really, a, he's destined to be a, you know, a guy that everybody walks up and looks in the, in the hell and goes, is this the man that called the earth to tremble and, and, and the nations to shake or the, sh-? however, I might got that backwards. But in Isaiah there, it's like, this is the guy, this serpent? He went from cherub all the way down to just almost like a man, wiggling around, rolling over in hell for all of eternity. Man, that's, that's right. Why do we let that guy strike fear in our heart? Well, because he's powerful. So don't underestimate his strength right now because he hasn't quite been put down. So respect your enemy, but understand he's going to be taken care of. Don't, you need to respect him, but you don't need to let him put fear in your heart. So love provides boldness and practice. Fear is an indication that we're not made perfect in love. And so 2 Timothy, in verse 7 of chapter 1, many of us are familiar with it. It teaches us that God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. I think all of us probably know that like a mantra, and I quote that to myself all the time. Nevertheless, why is that verse there? Because Timothy struggled with fear. How many of us struggle with fear? I mean, anxiety. I mean, come on, man. All of us. I can't, I'm not saying that because of Joe Biden. I just like saying it. Uh, <laughs> come on, man. That's a good way to draw people in. So... Uh, that's probably a bad time to do that. But anyway, <laughs> perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torment, right? So fear, it torments us. And sometimes fear today, we like to dress it up and we call it anxiety. God says, well, you know, you really, that isn't God's spirit. It may be your human spirit, or you may be in trouble by an evil spirit. Who knows? But the reality is, that's not coming from me. And boy, I remember when I was on the circuit, I would wrestle the night before I preached sometimes. It would be intense. And I'd just get to the hotel wherever I was going, and I'd just have to stop and just pray. I would feel terrible. I mean, right up to the time I'm in the pulpit. And then I'd preach, and everything would be like smooth, you know? Why? Because you're in a spiritual battle. Fear is part of the deal, man. Insecurity, all that other stuff. Do I have anything to say? What am I doing here? Am I supposed to be this guy? You know, all those doubts and things. The devil's like saying, what are you doing? Go back and do sheet metal. You know, go back and build buildings. Do what you do. This isn't what you should be doing. Even Paul, who was authoritatively writing 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, personally wrestled with fear. He admitted his struggle in 2 Corinthians 7 5. He says, for when we were coming to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Without we're fighting, so within we're fears. And by the way, if you want to help deal with anxiety, get good rest. You stay up all night, all day, you work for hours on end, you work 16-hour days, and you don't get enough rest, you're going to start getting fragile emotionally. Paul says, you know what, we were, we were stretching ourselves out, and there's times when you got to. You just don't get enough sleep. Okay, there's seasons for that, but make sure you get your rest. Your body heals itself. Your emotions get reset. Get away from the technology. Fast from that stuff. And let God heal your mind and your body and your soul. But also resort to the word of God. Let God comfort you in your anxiety. The difference between fear and faith is directly proportional to God's love working in and through you. through you. So that doesn't make Paul a hypocrite or a liar. It makes him human. As a man, he struggled with fear. As a saint, he knew the spirit of God that was in him, gave him a supernatural confidence in the promises of God's word so he could look Nero in the face and tell him Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, knowing that he's going to get killed. And that's exactly what he did. And so the difference between fear and faith is directly proportional to God's love working in and through us. If you are struggling with anxiety and fear, you need the word of God, not just going to you. It's got to be in you, and then it's got to go through you. It's got to go through you. If you're struggling with anxiety and fear, the word of God going in you and then through you is what's going to be important. This is why teaching God's word is so important to the believer. Even if you're not part of a teaching ministry, all saints need to be communicating God's word. It needs to come to them, in them, and through them. And if time permits, man, I tell you what, I'm running out of time, but I wish I had more time because I tell you, this church, you're doing a good job of that. Let me just quickly, real quick, how many of you are in Discipleship One right now? I just want to see your show of hands. Several? Some are in longer than others because we're slow, but that's, that's not their fault. How many of you are discipling people right now? All right, so there's not as many as I thought. How many of you can disciple someone right now? You're eligible. 
All right, so there's a lot. So there's opportunity just in that mode. That's not talking about other ministries where we teach the Bible, children's ministry. Hey, find a place, grow to a place, right? I'm not saying you have to teach a class or you got to, you know, but you know what? God has something for you where you can share what God's teaching you. Don't come to the men's breakfast and say, hey, you know what? I want to, you don't even have to do the devotion. Just share something that God's given you. I know in some of our classes, they have little accountability groups where they just read the Bible passage and they share something God gave. When you start to share what God gives you, man, it starts to really help. Say, what does that got to do with having boldness and, and not having fear? It has everything to do with it. Because not only does the word of God come to you, it needs to come in and through you. I can tell you guys from experience, when there's all kinds of things going on that can trouble you, but you stay focused on God's mission and God's power for God's glory, it's just amazing how everything just, just goes away. And it's not only are you ministering to others, but God's ministering to you. He's saying, hey, you're okay because you're in my will. You're doing what I've saved you to do. You're who God saved you to be. Keep on doing it. And that brings an assurance. The Holy Ghost comforts your heart, knowing that you are who you're supposed to be, doing what you're supposed to do. And it could be teaching your children. It could be doing something in the ministry at church. I'm not, I don't even care about the specifics. It's like being an intentional gospel outreacher, right? Share the gospel with people. You'll be amazed at how God ministers in and through you as you start sharing it with others. That doesn't mean you even enjoy it. It may be full of fear, but once you do it, you're like, man, Jesus, why wasn't I doing this more? All right, I got to move because I'm out of time and over. Number six, love produces our divine motive and response. And we'll be quick. Verse 19, we love him because he loved us. Pretty simple. God's love is our motive to love him back. So Romans 5, 8 says, but God commended his love toward us. We've already seen that. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we truly love God because he loved us first, and we cannot earn God's love, nor do we deserve it, and that's why we must first accept it before we can display it. So God's love is only appro- is the only appropriate response for the love that he has demonstrated to us. That leads us to our last point. So we've seen the triumph in the spirit of God's love. Love is our divine nature. Love originates from God's divine power. Love empowers our divine witness. Love provides divine assurance. Love provides divine boldness. Love provides our divine motive and response. And lastly, love is our divine command. And we end where we began. For if a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, well, he's a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he hasn't seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he loveth God, he, that lo- he who loveth God love his brother also. And I might add sister, of course, in the context of the local church. Our love for our brothers and sisters reveals our love for God. If we can't love the offspring of God that we do see, how can we love the Father who we don't see? So John points out, 1 John 1, 3, that our fellowship with one another is predicated with our fellowship that we have with the Father. And in the story of the prodigal, you remember the story of the prodigal son, there's an obedient son, Right? And then there's a disobedient son. There's a prodigal who wastes everything. But what happens with that obedient son? What eventually happens is God uses that prodigal who comes back home. right? The one who says, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be your servant. And the father runs to meet him. Only time you see God, you see a, a, a picture of the father running in the Bible. And he runs to meet him. And the other brother, what is it? He's honked off. He's like, how dare you forgive him and spend my inheritance on that loser. And in that moment, we really see where the problem lies, don't we? It wasn't in the father's heart, and it wasn't in the prodigal's heart. It was in the obedient son who cared more about what God could give him than his relationship with the father. Beloved, if it's not getting done in our lives, if the love of God's not manifest, mark it down. We're having daddy issues. And I don't mean with your earthly father. I mean your heavenly father. If you can't forgive other people, if you can't love your wife, if you can't love your husband, if you can't forgive your, your kids, if you can't forgive your parents, if you can't forgive your brother or sister in Christ, I'm telling you, you don't understand the love of the father. You say, yeah, but. No, go back and read the prodigal son. It's all about the love of the father. That's where it's at. And so just remember that as we get ready for the Lord's Supper next week because our hatred for our brother will prove that you're a liar. You can say all day, I love God, hallelujah to you. If you love your brother, you love God. The great commandment is the cure for triumphing over the lies of the Antichrist spirit. To know God is to love God, which means our fellowship with him and our brothers overcomes anything this world throws at us. 
And to know God is to love God, which means the message of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most impactful and effective way to love those whom the Father loves. And so those two things, if we're doing that, if we're loving each other and we're taking the gospel to the world, now we're cooking with gas. We've got to keep doing that. Amen? That finishes chapter 4. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the opportunity to look at love this morning and work through the rest of these verses in, in uh, the book of First John chapter 4.